So summer's in full swing, isn't it? We have people out on vacations. We're going on vacation in a couple weeks, and it reminds me of the time whenever Shelly and I had just got married, and we were on our honeymoon, and we went to Disney World. That's what you do on your honeymoon, right? We're, we may be a little different, but we were having fun. It was New Year's Day, or New Year's Eve, wasn't it? And we were just running around, and the person I kept seeing everywhere is, was Eddie Money. How many of you know who Eddie Money is, right? <clears throat> okay, so Eddie Money was awesome. He had some great music, and everybody knew him. The world knew him, and I thought, oh, this is great. Shelly gets on to me because I always go and talk to people that I shouldn't. And, but I kept seeing him, seeing him. And, you know, you have these images in your head about what these people are like. And so it's that night, and we're going through the, uh, it used to be the Golden Girls section, you know, all these, this little set. I think it was at a totally different park, and we saw Eddie Money, and we're walking right next to him. He's pushing a baby carriage, a stroller with his wife. So we just start talking, talking to Eddie Money. (laughs) Hey, nice stroller, you know. And what I realized is that, you know, when it comes right down to it, we may have different experiences, but we're not that different. And I realized I have something in common with somebody like Eddie Money. So then I started thinking, how far does that go? How many people are really similar to me? Today we talk about something a little bit interesting, I think. Um, we'll get to that in just a moment, but I did want to start with a story. Several years ago, uh, there was a girl named Debbie, and she had just had her second child, and she was uh, finally able to get out and go out with her friends. So she went out with her friends, they had a good time, and she was heading back to her car whenever three men kind of started following her, and they asked her if she had some change. She says, no, I don't have any change, and she kept going to her car. Well, then they started to demand change. And when she realized what they were about to do, she screamed. And the gun went off. It went right through her mouth and destroyed, really, her jaw. A lot of her teeth were gone. It would take her ten years to fully recover from that moment. Well, just a short time later, after doing what they do, they sentenced Ian Manuel to life in prison for this brutal crime. Debbie's in the hospital, and she finds out who did this, and she is shocked. Not because she knew the man, but because he wasn't a man at all. He's 13 years old. About a year into Ian's sentence, he picks up the phone and he calls Debbie Collect from prison. Debbie gets the call. Collect call from whatever prison it is. Will you accept the charges? And she says... Okay. The voice on the other end of the line was purely a young voice. And he says, I just wanted to wish you a Merry Christmas and a happy holiday. And I wanted to ask if there's any way you could forgive me. Here's a boy who had no hope for anything else in his life. Thirteen. And the state that he was in says, yes, it's okay to sentence a 13-year-old to life in prison. Debbie was filled with compassion. 
for this young boy, this 13-year-old, and she told him, yes, I forgive you. Over the next few years, they would exchange letters, became pen pals. And she began to fight for his release. 26 years later, she would testify on behalf of the boy, now a man who shot her. He walked out of prison. He came face to face with this woman who had become more like a mom to him. A woman who chose to love over hate. A woman who chose compassion over revenge. Now, I don't know if this woman is a follower of Jesus. I don't know if she's a Christian, but I see God in what she did. I see God in her mercy. I see God in her compassion. Compassion. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Remember I talked about Abba, Father, a couple of months ago. And this was our anchor verse. What I want to do over the next several weeks is I want to look at these attributes of God. If you remember, this is how God describes Himself. The only time that we see God fully describing Himself to humanity, and this is how He does it right here. And when you look at these, you'll notice that these are not passive words. Neither are they distant words. Yes, God is still high and exalted, but He doesn't describe Himself as distant here. The words He chooses are close words. They're intimate words. They're right next to you words. These are words that tell us immediately the lengths that He is going to be willing to go to to show us mercy. And He's going to be willing to walk alongside of us in the mess that we continue to make. So today we talk about mercy, the mercy of God in all of its many facets. And we will talk about this verse and we'll look at how these words still apply. And I think as we move forward here, we'll see that these attributes aren't reserved for God alone. We'll see that the Spirit of God wants to transform us in our lives and our attributes into His attributes. So no matter who you are, no matter what baggage you carry or how you carry it, there is mercy for you too. But it doesn't stop there. Because God wants us to start living this mercy as well. But we need to be warned because mercy works best where it is needed the most. And where is it needed? Usually right in the middle of the mess. Mercy is messy. And if there wasn't a mess, we wouldn't really need it now, would we? Let's pray before we go any further. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for bringing us this opportunity, this, this short period of time today to reflect on what it is You have for us and how You describe Yourself. Thank You for giving us an opportunity to sit and to take in the Word that You want to speak Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, your flawed servant, and that you would be able to offer hope and mercy for a room full of people who need it. Lord, we are not perfect. We are far from it. 
So help us to see how our lives can be like your, your life, how our hearts can be your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Matthew chapter 9 really quickly. We're going to see, we're just going to really be in two verses here, and it's something I came across this week. You know, there are some verses you kind of skim over. And I think that hopefully we might be able to spend a little bit of time. So Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 35 and 36. Now we find Jesus in this text, we find Him going from town to town healing people. Um, he's healing, He's teaching, uh, He's telling the good news. He's, um, you know, just being with people. Because God is near through Jesus Christ. Now I know that... Oftentimes we read the things that Jesus does, and, and if you're like me, like I said, you kind of have a tendency to skim over some of these parts. But if we read too quickly, I think sometimes we might minimize what's really going on here. So let's look at verse 35. Uh, it says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Now, have you ever thought to yourself, how many towns and villages were there back then? You ever thought that? How many, just if, it, okay, I know that you may be a person like me and have odd, um, you may have all these weird uh, facts in your head. How many cities are in Tom Green County? Anybody know? Really? Wow. <laughs> Next week, get to know your county. No. Okay, I don't either, okay? That's why I'm asking. <laughs> so I'm not judging. But I know there's more than one, all right? So if you look at Galilee, it's, it's not a huge area, but it's, it's a pretty big area if, you know, you're back then, you don't have vehicles, you know? What we found from writings in the past is that there's upwards of 200 plus towns and villages in the area of Galilee. Now, there's four major cities in that area, and if you were to combine all the people in this whole place, it'd be around 400,000 people. Now, the four major population centers are going to have probably 15 to 50,000 people each because they're pretty significant. So we're talking about 200 plus thousand people in this one area alone. This isn't even in Jerusalem. This isn't in those areas. This is in Galilee. So these weren't all Jews. There were uh, other nationalities in these population centers. There's the Decapolis, you know, these kind of these cities and towns, villages that Jesus is going into. They're kind of interspersed in between all these major cities. But just to think that there could have been 200,000 people in all these towns and villages. San Angelo, we've got, what, 110,000? And we know how busy our hospitals are here. This is just one town. We know how busy, how busy we have community and, and Shannon, how busy these hospitals are. How many people that are struggling with illness in this city alone. Can you imagine even on, in our room, in our church family, if you look at our, our bulletin and our prayer guide, you'll see that there are several people who have prayer requests for people who are going through difficult things. Some of our people are going through major illnesses ourselves. I mean, imagine how many sick and ill there were without conventional medicine. People in those days, just like you, struggling with a new medical reality. People just like you 
watching their friends or their families or loved ones, their children, go through difficult, difficult, life-threatening issues. People just like you who are, are at the end of their rope, all out of options. No hope left. And in that day, priests weren't really that much help when all is said and done. Because if you are sick, then that usually means that your, the sin in your life was now showing through. So if you're sick, eh, you're, you kind of deserve it. If someone had fallen into hard times, financially or otherwise, it was probably their fault. They were suffering from mental disorder or anxiety or depression. Well, there really was no hope for them at all, really. And what would some people do when there was no hope back then is that they would develop this, um, this me-first mentality. Because they don't have any hope, so they don't have much to lose. So they're going to get everything they can and make sure that they're best before anyone else. Me first mentality. Or they would do a my family first mentality. Those people who thought that their situation in their country was because God had left, they developed this Israel first mentality. So imagine the common person who had very little to look forward to, the common person whose families were barely scraping by, the country of common people who were wondering where God was. These are the people Jesus is spending his time with. These are the people, the hopeless, the aimless, the ones who have very little to lose. And when Jesus finds out where these people are, He goes to them. And when people find out what Jesus is doing, you can imagine how the word would spread. But Jesus isn't just making His rounds here. He's not just making appearances. He's spending time healing, connecting with people so listen to the next verse 36 when he saw the crowds he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd this shows us right here this one verse shows us that god is compassionate it shows us what compassion looks like now i can imagine as jesus begins healing and teaching and being with the people the more he does this the more people show up hope kind of begins to emerge it's faint but it's present i mean what kind of people were coming to him i'm sure he saw the best and i'm sure he saw the worst probably mostly the worst those people who were all on their own they're lost, and as it says, they're helpless. Jesus sees these people. Can you imagine the compassion? Compassion is where ministry begins. Compassion is not a standalone word. Compassion requires action. I mean, without action, compassion is really just sympathy. And if you think of what sympathy is, sympathy is really self-centered. It's, it's like bl saying bless your heart to somebody. You know, you can say the worst thing in the world to somebody. If you say bless your heart, it still sounds like you're being religious. You know, you're an idiot. Bless your heart, you know. <laughs> you know, 
sympathy is kind of the same thing. Oh, yeah, that's right there. But for the grace of God, go I. Right? It sounds good. But what we're saying is, thank heavens, I'm not like that guy. Woo, I'm so close. I'm one paycheck away, but I'm not there yet. Sympathy is kind of self-centered. Oh, I mean, it's really more focused on you. You know, I can be sympathetic at a distance. I don't have to deal with anybody if I'm sympathetic. But it is really impossible to be compassionate without getting close, without getting involved. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He gets close. He puts himself right in the middle of the people who needed hope the most. And I know we come into church every Sunday hopefully and we have a little wall people see the best of us but my question is do you need hope hopelessness is not really a respecter of persons it'll find anybody most anywhere it can be found in anybody hopelessness one of my heroes is a jesuit priest named Gregory Boyle. Uh, Gregory Boyle is a man who has put himself in one of the most hopeless places in America, uh, surrounded himself with some of the most hopeless people in America. There are at least uh, eight major gangs in the Los Angeles area, and if you were to track all their activity, all of these eight gangs, they converge in this one little place in East L.A., And that's where Gregory Boyle has decided to set up shop. He's been there almost 30 years. In his book, Tattoos on the Heart, uh, he describes how he decided to spend his life in the middle of these East L.A. neighborhoods so that he could show people that they matter, that they're loved, that there's hope for them through Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. It's interesting. He says, you will never see a hopeful gang member. Usually they get into that life because there is very little to no hope at all. So he started a ministry. He really just started to hang out with people, visiting them when they get shot. He started to go see them in prison, to write to them, to accept the collect calls. And then he starts a ministry. He says, you know what? Maybe we just start by giving these people jobs. Give them something to work towards. So he starts Homeboy Industries. He provides a way out of the gang life. It's grown to be a really successful organization. They have a bakery. They've got a place in the airport where they serve food. They've got lots of different ways to help so so you'll see people if you go to if you go to the la airport you see homeboy industries look behind the counter you will see people who are from opposing gangs serving working side by side once enemies now they're friends co-workers they call him g he's been there almost 30 years and he's discovered very clearly that mercy is messy he's buried close to 200 kids in his 30 years and the challenge is real but the key is compassion because compassion blurs the lines between us and them compassion always does something else it brings us close to one another and it leads to something called kinship he says there's no more me there's no more them there is just us 
The margins of humanity are erased when you see a group of people. Um, they're not erased when you see a group of, of people and you have sympathy for them. Margins are erased when you choose to go and stand in the margins next to these people. Margins disappear whenever we begin to see that the people on the margins are just as human as we are. They have just the same amount of baggage that we do. They just carry it differently. Compassion is choosing not to judge others as different than you just because they carry those experiences and those difficulties different than we carry our experiences and difficulties. So Jesus, He comes and He sees all these people as sheep that need a shepherd. He saw them as people who had no idea how valuable they were. He saw them as, as, as people who needed what He was there to bring. He had hope. He was hope. And He chose not to see them as separate. He chose to see them as His sheep, His people. He saw them as they were meant to be seen. I mean, maybe sometimes all it takes is seeing somebody. You'll hear this these, that phrase, that idea come up in my speaking a lot, seeing people. On one of his events, uh, he was with a few of his, uh, his uh, ex-gang members, you know, some of his success stories, and he took them um, uh, to a restaurant, a really nice restaurant. And as he's sitting there with these guys, they're eating, and they were very aware of the people that were noticing them and dining around them. And they were very nervous, and they actually said, hey, can we go? He says, no, it'll all be fine. Then the waitress comes up, and she starts calling them honey and sweetie, and she gives them many drink refills as they want I mean they'd never experienced this before they give she gives them as much tapatio as, as they want and they are just it's, it's just great and as they left he, these, these, these boys tell him hey I like her she treated me like I was somebody this is what God has chosen to do with us time and time again he could have chosen to be distant with us but he's not he chose to erase the margins by joining us, by standing here with us, by defending us. He identified with us, flaws and all, baggage and all. And that one act of compassion through Jesus led to the very thing that so many of these ex-gang members experience once they go through this, is they experience kinship. This is what that act of compassion of, through Jesus Christ, that was what it allowed us to experience kinship and we can't experience that from a distance but in order to get this close we have to be willing to go where others may be to stand alongside others not just see them and serve from a distance but go stand next to them to erase the margins between us and them because compassion begins when we choose to see others as God sees them kinship happens when we put aside our fear and we allow God to do his work through us that's what Jesus prays for in John 17 very last moment he has with his disciples he prays this prayer John 17 looking at verse 22 and 23 he says I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me 
Hopelessness isn't reserved for gang members. There are people all around you who are kind of messy people. You may be one of them. People who fill their lives with everything but God. Trying to fill that empty space in their soul. They live with a me-first mentality. You see it at work. You see it at school. You see it in your neighborhoods. You see it all over Facebook. Some of these people have been pushed so far into the margins that they don't know what's true, what isn't. They don't know where they belong. They're helpless, harassed, sheep without a shepherd. And when you interact with these people, will you fight back? Will you push them even further to the margins? Or can we choose to put our judgment aside, put ourselves in their position for a moment, choose to see them as God has chosen to see us? Could we choose to see them as people worth dying for? So precious that that these people belong in the family of God just as much as we do. Because the unity that Jesus talks about, it, it is kinship. It is family. And it's not just for people who look like us or talk like us or vote like us or act like us. His prayer is not just for me. It's for you. It's not just for them. It's not just it's for us. Just us. But it's messy. Judgment, compassion cannot be held together. You have to let go of one or the other. So my question for you this week, who is it that is on the margin of your life? Who is it in your sphere of influence who are on the margins? Could you put yourself in their position? Could you act on your compassion and allow God to erase those margins between you and your coworkers, between you and your acquaintances, between you and the people right here in this room? Consider this. Can you let God's compassion work through you? Think about this as we stand and as we sing. I'm up here if you need me.